welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we are bringing you another bad mixtape. Now, these are standalone episodes that combine music with poems, diary entries, short stories, all on a particular theme. This week, we've specially selected pieces with a strong sense of place, from the likes of Zikala Sir, Alice Dunbar Nelson, Emily Lawless, and George Eliot. Come with us as we explore an English country garden, the Yankton Reservation, home of the Yankton Dakota tribe, a bustling alleyway in New Orleans, and a quiet London drawing room. First up is the Honourable Emily Lawless, which is just a great name. Lawless was an Irish novelist, historian, poet, and like me, an avid gardener. Lawless was born in 1845 in County Kildare, Ireland, to Edward Lawless, the third Baron Cloncurry, and Miss Elizabeth Kerwin of the Castle Hackett Kerwins. Though born in Ireland and raised in England, Emily had strong ties to the country of her birth and spent summers with her mother's family in Galway. She was the granddaughter of famous Irish patriot Valentine Brown Lawless, and again, pause just to appreciate the the great name there. Now, Valentine Brown Lawless was arrested for protesting against the Act of Union, and uh, Emily was actually a unionist herself, and she did not share her grandfather's views or support of home rule. But she was interested, deeply interested in Irish politics and history. She eventually settled in Surrey, England, and that is where she died in 1913. When Emily was just 14 years old, her father died by suicide, leaving her and most of her seven siblings in financial chaos. Though her eldest brother Edward inherited the family home, the pair were not on good terms, so Emily found herself writing for her life, relying solely on the income of her work as an author for support. Emily wrote nearly 20 books, starting with her first published novel, A Chelsea Householder, in 1882, when she was 37 years old. And despite a writing career spanning nearly 30 years and success in her own lifetime, Lawless is almost all but forgotten today. And I think that we can put a little bit of the blame on the very famous Irish poet W.B. Yeats for that, who was very publicly not a fan of her work. And it caused quite a bit of backlash. In the Dublin Daily Express, Yeats said this of Lawless's Essex in Ireland. She has accepted the commonplace conception of Irish character as something charming, irresponsible, poetic, dreamy, untrustworthy, voluble, and rather despicable, and the commonplace conception of English character as something prosaic, hard, trustworthy, silent altogether, worshipful, and the result is a twofold slander. This bundle of half-truths made her describe the Irish soldiers throughout Essex and Ireland as a savage, undisciplined, ragged horde in the very teeth of Riley's letters, which proved them among the best disciplined in Europe, and made her grannier magnify a peasant type which exists here and there in Ireland, and mainly in the extreme West, into a type of the whole nation. Like, there's some valid criticism in there, but, you know, it's brutal. That's a bit brutal. He also described her as being only able to observe Irish character from without and not create it from within, which is definitely a dig at her being raised 
in England and only summering in Ireland. She's not a real Irishman like him. I think, though, another element to her being overlooked by the canon is that uh, Lady Sarah Spencer, to whom she dedicated her garden diaries, was her life partner. And we know how kindly history has treated Victorian lesbians, right? And yes, that Lady Sarah Spencer is, in fact, a distant relative of uh, Lady Diana Spencer and, of course, William and Harry. So what you're about to hear is the February 7th, 1900 entry from A Garden Diary, which Lawless published in 1901. This book chronicles the garden that she shared with Spencer from between September of 1899 to September of 1900. the very top of its strength. Cold as it has been of late, I hardly expected to find no garden left when I got up today. So it is, however. Late last night, everything seemed normal. This morning, our little Dutch garden has vanished utterly, swept out of existence as though it had never existed. From centre to margin, beds, borders, walks, red walls, everything. The entire little depression has been covered with a uniform white blanket, effacing it completely and restoring the landscape to what it was before man, woman or measuring tapes arrived to trouble it. For the plants, this new state of things is an improvement. But how about our work? Behold us, suddenly reduced to a state of deadlock, all our various little activities brought to an absolute standstill. The paths that were being cut through the copse. The ground that was being got ready for grass sowing. The flower beds that had to be clipped into the right shape. The heather that was being brought from a distant common where it could be cut discreetly. The entire bustle of the garden has been brought to a condition of arrest. <sighs> into the middle of our fussy little rhythm, nature has dropped her own imperious full stop. Against that full stop, there is no appeal. In vain, one protests that one is really in a great hurry, that unless these flower beds are made, unless yonder piece of ground is got ready for grass sowing, March will be upon us, and close at its heels, April, that the spring is coming on, and that we really must get our work done. To this remonstrance, Nature merely opens her eyes with a mildly sarcastic air and replies, Must you? It is the case of the old woman of the nursery tale over again, who had to get her pig over the stile in order to give her old man his supper. In that case, she did, after many repulses, find a complacent beast, I think, who undertook the task. The right spring was touched, the spell broken, and the whole state of deadlock dissolved at once. How we are to obtain so desirable a dissolution, I have yet to learn. I see no spring to touch. No bird, beast, or element that could be appealed to with the slightest hope of success. The sky, iron grey with vicious inky streaks across it, does not seem promising. Neither does the wind, which keeps to its beloved northeast. The earth is invisible, consequently is, for the moment, out of reckoning. While as for the birds and beasts, they are much more disposed to turn to us for help than to make any friendly propositions the other way. Some 
thing I really appreciated about that entry was how much it spoke to our relationship with nature, the expectations we have of it and the way we follow its rhythm, whether that's tending to a garden or living in areas of dramatic natural beauty, like our next author, who had a very personal connection to the landscape they grew up in. Zikala Shah, also known by her missionary name Gertrude Simmons and later her married name Gertrude Bonin, was an activist, writer, educator and musician. She was the first Indigenous American to write an opera, The Sundance. She worked for the Society of American Indians and American Indian Magazine. She and her husband founded the National Council for American Indians and she was the organiser of the Indian Welfare Committee. She contributed greatly to the passing of both the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act and later the Indian Reorganisation Act in 1934. Zikala Shah was born on the Yankton Indian Reservation, South Dakota, in 1876. Her mother was of CU Dakota heritage. Her father was Anglo-American and, like many authors we'll be discussing in this episode, absent for most of her life. When Zikala Shah was eight years old, she was recruited by missionaries and taken to White's Indiana Manual Institute, a Quaker boarding school, along with several other children from the reservation. Her mother was hesitant to let her go, but had concerns about her education as there weren't schools on the reservation that, you know, were an alternative for her to go to. Her arrival at the school marked the beginning of three deeply miserable years as her teachers did all they could to strip the children of their heritage and make them American, including forcing them to speak only English and cutting their hair. After training as a teacher herself and studying music, she eventually joined the staff at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. She stayed for less than two years, horrified that she was witnessing the trauma of her own school experience repeated on a new generation. She had become part of the machine erasing her own people's culture. Zikala Shah would eventually teach again, though it would be at a school on a Ute reservation in Utah and not a boarding school. In 1901, her first book, Old Indian Legends, was published, collecting essays that had previously appeared in Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Monthly. You'll be hearing one of these essays in just a moment. She also began working for the United States Bureau of Indian Affairs, where she met her husband, Raymond Talafasi Bonin, who she married in 1902 and had a son with, also named Raymond. In 1916, the family moved to Washington, D.C., where much of her and Raymond's activism took place, and it was in Washington that she died, aged 62, on January 26th, 1938. In the busy autumn days, my cousin Warka Zewin's mother came to our wigwam to help my mother preserve foods for our winter use. I was very fond of my aunt, because she was not so quiet as my mother. Though she was older, she was more jovial and less reserved. She was slender and remarkably erect. While my mother's hair was heavy and black, my aunt had unusually thin locks. Ever since I knew her, she wore a string of large blue beads around her neck beads that were precious because my uncle had given them to her when she was a younger woman. She had a peculiar swing in her gait, caused by a long stride, rarely natural to so slight a figure. It was during my aunt's visit with us that my mother forgot her accustomed quietness, often laughing heartily at some of my aunt's witty remarks. 
I loved my aunt threefold for her hearty laughter, for the cheerfulness she caused my mother, and most of all, for the times she dried my tears and held me in her lap when my mother had reproved me. Early in the cool mornings, just as the yellow rim of the sun rose above the hills, we were up and eating our breakfast. We awoke so early that we saw the sacred hour when a misty smoke hung over a pit surrounded by an impassable sinking mire. This strange smoke appeared every morning, both winter and summer, but most visibly in midwinter, it rose immediately above the marshy spot. By the time the full face of the sun appeared above the eastern horizon, the smoke vanished. Even very old men, who had known this country the longest, said that the smoke from this pit had never failed a single day to rise heavenward. As I frolicked about our dwelling, I used to stop suddenly and with a fearful awe watch the smoking of the unknown fires. While the vapor was visible, I was afraid to go very far from our wigwam unless I went with my mother. From a field in the fertile river bottom, my mother and aunt gathered an abundant supply of corn. Near our teepee, they spread a large canvas upon the grass and dried their sweet corn in it. I was left to watch the corn, that nothing should disturb it. I played around it with dolls made of ears of corn. I braided their soft fine silk for hair and gave them blankets as various as the scraps I found in my mother's work bag. There was a little stranger with a black and yellow striped coat that used to come to the drying corn. It was a little ground squirrel who was so fearless of me that he came to one corner of the canvas and carried away as much of the sweet corn as he could hold. I wanted very much to catch him and rub his pretty fur back, but my mother said he would be so frightened if I caught him that he would bite my fingers. So I was as content as he to keep the corn between us. Every morning he came for more corn. Some evenings I have seen him creeping about our grounds, and when I gave a sudden whoop of recognition, he ran quickly out of sight. When mother had dried all the corn she wished, then she sliced great pumpkins into thin rings, and these she doubled and linked together into long chains. She hung them on a pole that stretched between two forked posts. The wind and sun soon thoroughly dried the chains of pumpkins. Then she packed them away in a case of thick and stiff buckskin. In the sun and wind, she also dried many wild fruits, cherries, berries, and plums. But chiefest among my early recollections of autumn is that one of the corn drying and the ground squirrel. I have few memories of winter days at this period of my life, though many of the summer. There is only one which I can recall. 
Some missionaries gave me a little bag of marbles. They were all sizes and colors. Among them were some of colored glass. Walking with my mother to the river on a late winter day, we found great chunks of ice piled all along the bank. The ice on the river was floating in huge pieces. As I stood beside one large block, I noticed for the first time the colors of the rainbow in the crystal ice. Immediately, I thought of my glass marbles at home. With my bare fingers, I tried to pick out some of the colors, for they seemed so near the surface. But my fingers began to sting with the intense cold, and I had to bite them hard to keep from crying. From that day on, for many a moon, I believed that glass marbles had river ice inside of them. Now we'll travel over a thousand miles to New Orleans for this next piece written by Alice Dunbar Nelson. Alice is an author that we've covered on the show before and featured in our book, Why She Wrote. She is a well-known poet, activist, journalist, and is often associated with the Harlem Renaissance. Alice Moore was born in 1875 in New Orleans. She was raised within the city's multiracial Creole community, and Alice herself was of African-American, Native American, and European descent. Her early work focuses on New Orleans culture, with a particular attention paid to the history and landscape, as well as the class and racial dynamics present within the community. Alice's first collection of poems and short stories, entitled Violets and Other Tales, was published when she was just 20 years old. At the time, she was working as a teacher in the New Orleans public school system. The story you're about to hear, entitled Anarchy Alley, hails from that collection, and it's one of my favorite pieces of regionalist writing. I love how the prose feels almost like poetry and has a certain sort of rhythm that fits perfectly with New Orleans. To the casual observer, the quaint, narrow little alley that lies in the heart of the city is no more than any other of the numerous divisions of streets in which New Orleans delights. But to the idle wanderer, or he whose mission down its four squares of much-trodden stones, is an aimless one, whose eyes unforced to bend to the ground in thought of sordid ways and means, can peer at will into its quaint corners. Exchange Alley presents all the phases of a Latinized portion of America, a bit of Europe, perhaps the restless, chafing, anarchistic Europe of today, in the midst of the quieter democratic institution of our republic. It is Bohemia, pure and simple, Bohemia in all its stages, from the beer saloon and the cheap bookstore to the cheaper cook shop and uncertain lodging house. There the great American institution, the wanderous monarch, whom the country supports, the tramp, basks in superior comfort and contented, unmolested indolence, idleness and labor, poverty and opulence, the honest, law-abiding working man, and the reckless, restless anarchists, jostle side by side, and brush each other's elbows in the terms of equality as they do 
nowhere else. On the busiest thoroughfares in the city, just in the busiest part, between two of the most crowded and conservative of cross streets, lies this alley of Latinism. One might almost pass it hurriedly, avoiding the crowds that cluster at this section of the streets, but upon turning into a narrow section, stone paved, the place is entered, appearing to end one square distant, seeming to bar itself from the larger buildings by an aimless sort of iron affair, part railing, part post. There is a conservative bookstore at the entrance on one side, and an even more harmless clothing store on the other. Then comes a saloon, with many blind doors, behind which the vistas of tables, crowded and crowded, with men drinking beer out of globes. Large, round, moony, common affairs. There is a dingy pension claim office, with cripples and sorrowful-looking women in black, sitting about on rickety chairs. Somehow, there is always an impression with me that the morning dress and mournful looks are put on to impress the dispenser and adjuster. It is wicked, but what can one do if impressions come? There are more little cutties of places, dye shops, tailors, and nondescriptive corners that seem to have no possible mission on earth and are sadly conscious of their aimlessness. Then the railing is reached, and the alley, instead of ending, has merely given itself an angular twist to the right, and extends three squares further to a great pale green dome and stately entrance. The calmly thinking, quietly laboring, cool and conservative world is for the nonce left behind. With the first stepping across Custom House Street, the place widens architecturally, and the atmosphere, too, seems impregnated with a sort of mental freedom, conducive to dangerous theorizing and broady reflections on the inequality of the classes. The sun shines in a strip in the center, yellow and elusive, like gold. Someone is rattling a gay gallop on a piano somewhere. There's a sound of men's voices and a heated discussion, a long whiff of pipe smoke trails through the sunlight from the barroom, the clink of glasses, the chink of silver, and the high treble of a woman's voice scolding a refractory child, mingle in incongruous melody. Two-story houses all along, the first floor divided into cutties. Here, a paper store displaying 10-cent novels of detective stories with impossible cuts, illustrating impossible situations of the plot. Dye shops, jewelers, tailors, tinsmiths, cook shops, intelligence offices, many of these, and some newspaper offices. On the second floor, balconies, dingy, iron-railed, with sickly box plants and decrepit garments airing and being turned, intended by disheveled, slipshod women. Lodging houses these, some of them, but one is forced to wonder why do the tenants sun their clothes so often? The lines stretched from post to post seem almost filled with airing garments. Is it economy? And do the owners of the faded vests and patched coats hide in dusky corners while their only garments are receiving the benefits of old souls cleansing rays? And are the women with the indiscriminate tresses near relatives or only the landladies? 
It would be something worth knowing, if one could. Plenty of saloons, great, gorgeous, gaudy places, with pianos and swift-footed waiters, tables and cards, and men, men, men. The famous Three Brothers Saloon occupies a position about midway the alley, and at its doors, the acme, the culminating point, the superlative degree of unquietude and discontent is reached. It is the headquarters of nearly all the great labor organizations in the city. Behind its doors, swinging as easily between the street and the liquor-fumed halls as the soul swings between right and wrong. The disturbed minds of the working men become clouded, heated, and rockily ready for deeds of violence. Outside on the pavements, with hundreds of like-excited men with angry discussions and bitter recitals of complaints, the seeds of discord sown some time since, perhaps spout afresh, blossom, and bear fruits. Is there a strike? Then special minions of the law are detailed to this place for violence and hatred of employers, insurrection, and socialism. Find here ready followers. Impromptu mass meetings are common, and law-breaking schemes find their cradle beneath its glittering lights. It is always thronged within and without a veritable nursery of riot and disorder. And oh, bohemia, pipes, indolence, and beer. The atmosphere is impregnated with it. The dust sifts it into your clothes and hair. The sunlight filters it through your brain. The stray snatches of music now and then beat it rhythmically into your mind. There are some who work, yes, and a few places outside of the saloons that seem to be animated with a business motive. There are even some who push their way briskly through the aimless bodies of men. But then there must be an occasional anomaly to break the monotony, if nothing more. It is so unlike the ordinary world, this bit of Bohemia, that one feels a personal grievance when the marble entrance and great green dome become positive, solid architectural facts, standing in all the grim solemnity of the main entrance of the Hotel Royale on St. Louis Street, ending with a sudden return to aristocracy, this stamping ground for anarchy. This next piece is a little different as we move things inside specifically to a quiet London drawing room overlooking a busy street below. This poem by George Eliot was written in 1869 but remained unpublished until 1959, long after the author's death. For me, it perfectly captures the loneliness and unsettled feelings of her life in London, largely ostracised by society and far away from the pastoral scenes of her childhood. Through the success of her novels, Eliot found fame, but acceptance in polite society was still many years away, and that really comes through in the poem. But why was George Eliot so isolated? To understand this, we have to understand why she was living in London and with who. Born in the Neaton in 1819, Mary Ann Evans was the youngest child of Robert and Christiana Evans. Robert and Christiana invested heavily in their daughter's education as they were concerned she would not be attractive enough to rely solely on the security of marriage. When Marianne was 16, her mother died and a few years later, Robert moved his daughter to Coventry, 
where Mary Ann, now 21, entered a liberal and free-thinking social circle. She stopped going to church, started writing, and changed her name to Marion. By 1851, she had moved to London and was the co-editor of the Westminster Review, and it was here she met the charismatic literary critic George Henry Lewis. Despite having a wife and children, Lewis was unable to deny his attraction to Marion, and in 1854, the pair eloped with high quotations, <laughs> uh, eloped to Germany and began to refer to one another as husband and wife. George was not able to divorce his first wife, Agnes, for legal reasons, and though Marion had taken his name, she was, in the eyes of London society, his mistress. As a man, George was largely unhindered by the openness of their relationship, but the same could not be said for Marion, who passed most of her time in solitude, unwelcome in London and estranged from her family in the Neaton and her friends in Coventry. In 1857, Marion published The Sad Fortunes of Reverend Amos Barton in Blackwood's magazine under the pseudonym George Eliot, and her unexpected success changed her life forever. Not only did the popularity of her first and subsequent novels find her a home with the London literati, but in 1877 she was presented to Princess Louise, daughter of Queen Victoria, and welcomed once more by polite society. Uh, after George Henry Lewis's death, she remarried to John Cross in 1880, who was a long-time friend and 20 years her junior. She died in December the same year and was buried in Highgate Cemetery next to George Henry Lewis. The sky is cloudy, yellowed by the smoke. For view, there are the houses opposite, cutting the sky with one long line of wall like solid fog. Far as the eye can stretch, monotony of surface and of form, without a break to hang a guess upon. No bird can make a shadow as it flies, for all is shadow, as in ways overhung by thickest canvas, where the golden rays are clothed in hemp. No figure lingering pauses to feed the hunger of the eye or rest a little on the lap of life. All hurry on and look upon the ground, or glance unmarking at the passers-by. The wheels are hurrying too, cabs, carriages, all closed, in multiplied identity. The world seems one huge prison house and court, where men are punished at the slightest cost, with lowest rate of colour, warmth and joy. So that's it for this mixtape, but that isn't it from us or from George Eliot. That is right. Hannah has talked me into a George Eliot read-along. So we are doing Silas Marner right now, really. Our discussion threads are already up in our Facebook group. And uh, we're going to get that going next week. So if you would like to share your thoughts on Silas Marner with us, do it now. Do it soon. Find us on social media. Hannah, where can our listeners find us on the interwebs? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, in English and Spanish, wherever you get your usual literary fix. And if you enjoyed this bad mixtape, please, please join me in a round of applause for our amazing voice actors, Desiree Shanafelter of Dynasty Audio, 
Sassy Clyde, and Katie Mosley. Thank you guys so much. Thank you.